in the coming of the Lord, but may we also be uh, burdened about it. And may we be uh, convicted in our hearts to do all that we can do in this day that God's given us to preach the gospel. We here in America have no excuse. We have freedom to worship. We have freedom to take the word of God. We have freedom to boldly proclaim it, at least for this time period. And we ought to be busy taking full advantage of that. There are places in our world today that do not have such liberty. And we of all people ought to be those that take full advantage of what God has entrusted to us the last few hundred years with uh, the wonderful, uh, really, uh, it's, it's a freedom that is the first that's ever come to mankind, at least at this level, in all of the history of humanity. And there's never been the amount of religious liberty that we uh, wonder and we love here in America today uh, in, the, in the history of mankind. Uh, for there to be a written law that declares that we have the religious liberty to worship as uh, God leads our hearts and by our consciences as they're directed by God's Word. So may we be busy doing that. Isaiah chapter number 5, if you will. And um, we're going to uh, start a message tonight that is probably going to be about a four-part message. <laughs> uh, it's all one message. It's not multiple ones. I'm not doing a series here. But it's such a, a lengthy message as far as the material behind it. And uh, the, the, the premise of it is this. How to stand upright in an upside-down world. How we should stand upright in an upside-down world. Isaiah chapter number 5, we begin reading in verse number 20. God is using Isaiah to warn the children of Israel. And he says, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of, of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. And what an amazing passage of Scripture as God gives a warning. And any time God uses the word Woe in Scripture, it is a, a very strong word and a word of warning that unless these things change, His judgment, His righteous judgment, I should say, is going to come on them if things do not change. If you'll remember when He was rebuking the Pharisees in His earthly ministry, <clears throat> often He would use the phrase, Woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And what He was saying is, You appear righteous, and you set your own standard of righteousness. And the truth is you're being very hypocritical. We even use the word pharisaical as a synonymous word to being hypocritical because the Pharisees were, were just that. Outwardly they were clean, but inwardly they were full of dead men's bones. And as we get to verse number 23, we see the hypocrisy of these leaders as it says, which speaking of these mighty men that were mentioned in verse uh, 22, the men of strength, in verse 22, it says, which justify the wicked for reward. In other words, they're going, to, they're going to take the wicked and they're going to say that what the wicked are doing is right and they're doing it because it lines their pockets when they do. They get something out of it. And then in, in return, they take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. 
They call evil good and good evil. And there's no doubt we are living in a day where by leaps and bounds we are seeing this area decline, this, this spiraling down in morality. Mahatma Gandhi said years ago to a Christian fellow who was trying to share the gospel of Christ with him, he made this statement. He said, quote, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians, for your Christians are so unlike Christ. Such condemning words. Somebody wrote this. He said, the problem with many non-Christians isn't that they don't know any Christians. The challenge is that they do. Many Christians would tell you that we have an image problem but, and that we're being treated unfairly, that we're being persecuted, or that we're being badly misunderstood. It's not so much that Christians have an image problem. It's far more likely that we have an integrity problem. We do get misunderstood on some issues. I have no doubt of that. Anytime we stand and, and live godly in Christ Jesus, the Bible says we shall suffer persecution. And we know that. And so there's no doubt we are misunderstood on some issues. But those are things that are outside of our control. But what I'm fearful of in the day that we live is the things that are within our control. We can respond better and live uprightly in a world that is upside down. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the moral laws of God. And making sure that when we come to these moral laws, that we are treating them the way that the Bible says we should treat them. And there's, there's three things that somebody did a survey here. It's been, I think it was about three years ago. They did a survey of unsaved people. And they, they had, there were three issues, three top issues that unsaved people had with Christianity. And when I list the issues for you, if all I did was give to you what they are without giving you some explanation of them, you would sit here and think, well, we're being wrongly accused by that. But as you dig deeper into it, I'm not so sure that Christianity as a whole is not guilty of these three things. And I understand I'm generalizing here that there are certainly people that are not this way. But it's, it's sad that the idea of Christianity as a whole, taken as a group, is identified and marked by the unsaved people as being characterized by three things. The first one is they say that you're too judgmental. Now, we've preached on this issue because a lot of people misuse the verse in Matthew that says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. But the problem is, the, the context of that passage, if you'll read down through verse number 5 of that same chapter, you'll find that this judgment that God is condemning there, that Christ is condemning there, is not righteous judgment, but it's hypocritical judgment. It is judgment that is based on our sense of spiritual accomplishment. In other words, we're comparing people by what our standard is, what level of spirituality we have achieved. And because they don't measure up to us and mark it down, it's because of our pride and it's because of our arrogance. Have you ever noticed you usually don't judge somebody who's more moral than you but maybe lost? It's often our judgment comes when we use our level of spirituality as our standard to judge. And that is a hypocritical judgment. Later on, we are told that we are to judge, but we're not to judge by how we're living. We're not to judge by our level of spirituality that we've attained. We're to judge by the truth of God's Word. And the world is tired. They are sick and tired of Christians that judge based on you're not what I am and therefore you're wrong. It should rather be you're not what the Bible says you ought to be, and I know I'm not either, but we all ought to be striving to become that. 
And I'll come alongside you and help you become like that. And the world's tired of seeing you hypocrite, which is the second thing that it leads to. Because our judging is wrong, because we judge hypocritically and not righteously uh, far too often, the second thing that the world hates about Christianity is they say that, uh, that they have a level of hypocrisy in their lives. By the way, I understand this, and I hope you know this too. That when we preach the truth of the Word of God, if somebody's looking at our lives to validate that truth, there will always be this side of heaven, a level of hypocrisy, because we will never attain fully to it. But it ought not to be because we're comfortable in that lifestyle. It ought be that those are the mistakes that we make, that those are the things that we have a broken and a contrite spirit over and we strive to do better at. That we're not content in the fact that we don't follow every aspect of Scripture. Our desire ought to be to do better at following every aspect of Scripture. And again, when the world looks at the hypocrisy of Christianity, what they find is a Christian that names the name of Christ, that says they believe the Bible, and then they live at a level that doesn't match up to the Bible, and there doesn't seem to be any conscience about it. If Christians failed to meet the Scripture, but they could show the fact that they were broken over it and that they're trying to do more to live by that Scripture, the world would have far more respect for Christianity. But when they see the world say, we want to become like you so that we can reach you, they're just saying, well, you're going to live like us. That's hypocritical. There's no desire to do any better. And the unsaved world hates that. Because... We, we judge wrongly, we judge hypocritically, we judge by our standard of morality and where we have attained. And we compare people we're apt to and we're prone to do that because of our pride, because of our arrogance, thinking that we are better than them because we've attained more. It leads us to be hypocritical and to not live the Bible the way that we should and to be okay with that, which leads us to the third thing. That there is a sense of the fact that Christians are unfriendly and hateful to the lost. Because we are hypocritical and because, and I use two words there, our hypocrisy is based on our sense of pride and our sense of arrogance. And there's a difference between the two. Our sense of pride is patting ourselves on the back and saying, boy, I am something. I have become way more than I, than I ever used to be. Can I tell you this? If I look at the Apostle Paul's life, Paul had every reason to, to be prideful, and he even told us that in Scripture. In fact, he, he had so much going for him that he could, could create pride in his life that God sent a messenger of Satan to buffet him. It was from God that this, this messenger of Satan came so that it would keep him. And, and Paul said it twice in that passage, lest I should be exalted above measure. And, and by the end of his life, Paul would be the first one to tell you, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I have not yet attained. But that's the exact opposite attitude that we see in a lot of Christianity today. The longer we're saved, the more we go to church, the more we study Scripture, the more we pat ourselves on the back thinking, I have become elevated in my spirituality to a place where I am something. Can I tell you this? The closer we get to God, it ought to bring a more sense of humility because we see ourselves in the, more, in the, in the eyes that God has. I don't see Isaiah without God's physical presence in front of him uh, every day of his life just walking out in the street and all of a sudden falling down and saying, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. But you get him in the throne of God 
in the presence of the Holy One, seeing Him high and lifted up in His train filling the temple, seeing this, the, cherub, uh, the seraphims uh, surrounding His throne and, and crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God of hosts. And there Isaiah says, the closer I got to Him, the more I saw His holiness, the more I saw my undone condition. And because of this, this, this is pride, this is pride things. Arrogance comes when we allow our pride to think not only have I done good, but now I am better than this person over here. Now that becomes arrogance. And we judge according to that. When we judge according to that, we are perceived as being hypocritical. And when we're perceived as being hypocritical and judging them based on that merit, we seem to be unfriendly. Uncaring, uncompassionate, unkind. I've, I've far believed this. For many, many years now it's been that people need to know that you care about them. I, I long to share the gospel with people. I do. There's times that I've, I've been with somebody that I had never met before. And realized and understand through conversation that more than likely they were not saved. And I've started to bring the subject around to spiritual matters. And, and if that door did not open, rather than kicking it open and pushing on through, I would stop there for a while. And I would encourage to, uh, to talk with that person, to spend time with that person and let them know, listen, I'm care, I care for you. You're a friend of mine. There's something I, I want to share with you, but I want to make sure that you're willing to listen to me. There needs to be a kindness, a sense of the fact that I'm nothing more than a sinner that's been saved by the grace of God, and I am no better than that person except for the grace of God. And that's not my doing, that's His. And this is how the world perceives us. There's some things that we need to change in our life in order for us to live uprightly in an upside-down world and make a difference in the lives of people who resent as a whole Christianity. There's some things that we need to change. There's some things we need to do and we need to start in our lives. And I'll start by saying this, that we need to start by upholding the moral standard of God. We need to start by making it not just our center of standard, but that by which we judge everything else. And by the way, when I judge my life according to Scripture it will certainly bring a sense of humility to me when I realize in just how many ways I do not measure up to it. I want to, I want to just, by way of laying some foundation tonight, give you some things I've shared with you before, but I want to remind you of them because they're very critical. There are three types of laws that God gives in Scripture. One of them is a ceremonial law. This was given specifically to the nation of Israel. The ceremonial laws were given to identify them as His chosen people. And they were to them and them alone. There are certain laws that the children of Israel had to follow that no other nation was responsible to follow. Those laws, unless you are a Jew and still under the Old Testament law, you're not bound by those. There's a second set of laws that God gave that I would call spiritual laws. These are laws that people who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ and by His precious blood ought to be following, and yes, we are subject to those. This would be laws and directions and commands that teach us how we're to worship now. Our motives, 
uh, of worship, our method of, of worship, and our spirit of worship. And he instructs us in those things. He teaches us in the New Testament how we should, uh, how we should behave ourselves in the house of God. This would include things such as biblical standards for sake of testimony. This would include things of how we're to practice in the church and church discipline and church administration. This is how we deal with uh, conflicts in the church. He gives us rules and guidelines for that. And, and we, as God's children, are to follow those things. And then there's a third type of law that God gives in Scripture. These we would call moral laws. The moral laws that are given of Scripture are laws that every man is supposed to follow. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We shouldn't have any idols in our lives. We should not covet our, our, our neighbor's wife. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't lie. We, we, the ten, the, most of the Ten Commandments are given as moral laws. We're not to commit murder. These are laws that every man must uphold and every man must look at as the, the unchangeable, absolute moral law of God. The problem with our society and our world today as a whole is this, that there is a prevalent philosophy that, that began back in, really from the time of Adam and Eve and has slowly grown but has exponentially expeded, uh, sped up and increased in the amount of which it's, it's increasing in its popularity. And there's the idea of humanism. Humanism is the idea that every man is his own God. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Every man is his own moral center. And there are people out there today that are trying to legislate laws in our country that are legislating laws based on what they think is moral. And for every one person that you have that thinks this thing is moral, you have another person over here that says this thing is not moral. And the sad thing is that there are some who say we don't believe that it's moral because it's the way we feel. We believe that it's moral because that's what God says. And that should be our standard. And more and more, our world is revolving around, we don't care what the Bible says. In fact, they're denying the Bible if it even is the Word of God. They reject it as being God's Word. And they say that the moral laws ought to be based on what I think is morally right and what I think is morally wrong. And so every man comes up with their own moral standards. Every man is his own God. Every man is his own egocentric moral center. As Christians, you and I know that the Bible is our moral center. It is our source. It's our sole authority of faith and practice and ought to set everything in, right, in, our, in our lives right. Uh, hold your, uh, you don't need to hold your place here. But let's turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. And I know I've used this passage a few times before, but I want to I bring out something in it tonight that I'm not sure I've shared before with it. Hebrews chapter number 5. Hebrews chapter number 5. The writer of Hebrews is speaking of the priesthood of Christ. How he's not only our priest, but also he's going to be the sacrifice. Um, and uh, he's, he's speaking of some very deep things about the position of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we get to verse number uh, 12, uh, let's go to verse number 11, I'm sorry. Speaking here of Christ, he says, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. What made it hard for them to say these things about Christ 
was not because it was difficult to say them, but it was difficult to get people to understand them. He says that, that there were some things they wanted to say about Christ and His position and His work in redemption, that He says that there are many of these things that are hard to be uttered, seeing your dull of hearing. In other words, what made it hard was people couldn't understand what they were saying. Could we say that we live in a world like that today? For when the time, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and there become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Referencing the analogy of how a young baby has to start with milk. And as they grow and get stronger, then they can move on to something that is more than just milk. And at some point in the Christian life, we need to be maturing, we need to be growing, we need to be learning things from the Scriptures that will help us to be able to devour and to, uh, to digest and to implement strong meat from God's Word. It doesn't all have to be spoon-fed. It doesn't all have to be milk. It doesn't all have to be tickling to the ears. It doesn't all have to be something that, boy, it just really charged my battery tonight. It needs to be strong meat that we can, re, we can, uh, we can uh, grow in and we can strengthen in. For everyone that useth milk is what? Unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and and evil. I looked up the word exercise in the Webster's 1828 dictionary, and I know we think that it just means by reason of use, by you know, the more we exercise it, the more we do it, the more we'll understand. I was amazed at what the Webster's 1628 dictionary used to define the word exercise. You ready for this? It does mean to be used, obviously. Secondly, it means to be trained. Trained. It's, it's something that by repetition of reading God's Word and seeing the truth, we are trained in it. I'm going to use Brother Harold for I hate to use it for an illustration. you got a new dog. Getting ready to train this dog. The first time you shared that dog, the, the command, and, and you said it, did he come right away? Did he do it right away? No. It takes repetition, doesn't it? Over and over. And then, once he's trained, do, do you just never have to even worry about training anymore? No, you got to continue to train. And continue to train. Why? So you don't lose it. And this, this idea of exercising their senses uh, to discern both good and evil comes from studying the Scriptures not one time and getting it down, but by constantly feeding your soul on it. By reason of use to exercise their soul. It means to be disciplined. That's a good word, isn't it? In the Word. And then this one. To make skillful by use. I like that one. To make skillful by use, to be employed in, to be practiced in, to discern between what is good and what is evil. How do I get this discernment? How do I get this strong meat? By getting involved in this Word of God, by exercising in it, by, by, by reinforcing it, by repetition, by skillful use of it. Over and over and over again, we're to do these things. We are in a world that's upside down. We're in a world that calls evil good and good evil. And Christians are caught in the, in the turmoil and the tempest of these things. 
We feel like we're in a tempestuous sea and floundering around. I remember years ago when I was a young teenager, just 13, 14 years old, we lived uh, on the ocean uh, in South Florida. Our, our house was about three miles from the Atlantic Ocean. And I remember as a 13-year-old kid, 14-year-old kid, wanting to learn how to surf in the surf of the uh, waves out there in the, in the Atlantic Ocean. And I didn't own a surfboard. We were poor. didn't have a lot of money. Couldn't afford a surfboard. But there was a surf shop there out on the ocean that you could rent a surfboard for $5. And I went down there and I got this surfboard. It must have been 150 years old, probably solid wood and about 20 foot long, it seemed like. One, they called it a longboard. I rented that thing and we went out there in the ocean and you had to put a $40 deposit down on this surfboard, which for me, that was a lot of money. So $5 to rent at $40 deposit. So I go out there and I, I, I swim out and I'm watching all the other guys do it. I'm trying to watch them and learn. And I got up on it a time or two and I'd go about 20, 30 feet and then I'd fall off and didn't have good balance. But I was, I was out there a certain way, a, a pretty good ways one time and and there was a nice looking swell coming. And boy, I could see everybody getting excited. And they all turned their boards and they all start paddling to get going with the wave. And I remember doing that and I started paddling with it. And that wave caught me. And just as it was starting to crest over the top, and I didn't catch it at the right time. I'm sure I was late. But just as it was starting to break, it caught the back of my board. And it flipped me head over heels up into that wave. And it came crashing down on top of me. And when it did, it knocked the wind out of me. And you know when you knock the wind out of you, the first thing you want to do is take a big, deep gulf. You couldn't do that because you're under the water. You're, and, and I remember it seemed like an eternity. This wave is rolling me under the, under the wave, and I'm gas, trying to gasp for air and hold my breath and not swallow a bunch of water. And, and the, the surfboard had a, a, a leash that was tied to my ankle so it could only go about 10 feet away from me. And this thing's crumbling back on top of me and hitting me. And I feel, I felt like I'm in a, I felt like I was in a, a washing machine and couldn't get out of it. And I don't know how long it lasted. It was probably a few seconds. It seemed like, like minutes to me. It just, cause I couldn't get a breath. And I finally come up out of that water and I mean, I'm bewildered. I'm dazed and struggling with that. I look over and the board is broken in half. The wave had been so strong it broke the board. I thought of that. So I thought of the world we live in today. It's upside down. It's, It's tumbling over and over and over. And if we're not careful and if we're not grounded as Christians... We'll be overcome by some of these things, and it'll feel, cause us to feel like that, that we're, we don't even know which way is up. How, how do we even know which way to go? In the next several weeks, we're going to be covering this, this uh, I don't want to call it a series, it's a message. It's an ongoing message, week after week till we finish it up, on how do we survive? How do we remain upright? How do we remain godly and steadfast in a world that is upside down? I want to end with this tonight, if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, all of this has been introduction. Here's the message for tonight. It's only 8, 17 points, so we'll be out here in a few minutes. It's not that long. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you will, verse number 14. Second Corinthians 6, verse number 14. Be not ye unequally yoked together with unbelievers. There's two people mentioned here so far. We have you and unbelievers. If unbelievers are distinguished from you, then we are making the implication here that you are saved. That you're the one that has trusted Christ as your Savior because He's saying that you're not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. 
Meaning that you have to be the opposite of that. So for those that are saved, here are the instructions of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Be not ye unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, we love to use this verse when it comes to people that are dating and considering marriage. But that is not the context of this chapter. You can certainly use it in application for that. But it is not specifically designed for just that. This is a verse of separation from the world. Not a marital counseling verse, but a verse for Christians. It says, Be not ye unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For, notice this, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, the unsaved, that's who them are, and be ye, that's the saved, separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now I want to give you several things here very quickly. The writer of First Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, calls the unbelievers several things, and he tells and he tells us that we are to. We're, there's several things he tells us that we're not to do. First of all, he tells us that we're not to be yoked to them. We are not to be yoked to them. Now, that could be in marriage, that could be in business, that could be in close. Friendship and, and, and involved in each other's lives doing the same things. To have this, this bond between them. Then notice he doesn't only say that we're not to be yoked with them, but notice what else it says. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? He asks a question, but the implication of that is we should not even have fellowship with them. And then he says, what communion hath light with darkness? We're not to commune with them. Notice he says this, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? We're not to have any concord with them. We're not to, we're not to be in agreement with them. And then he says, and, and, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? We're to have no part with them. So what are we supposed to do? Well, he tells us then some things we should do. Verse number 17, we're to come out from among them. Now, by the way, when he uses the phrase, come out from among them, it makes the implication that the church he was writing to, at that time, were doing all of these things. They were being yoked with them. They were being in fellowship with them. They were communing with them. They were in concord with them. They were in part with them. And they were in agreement with them. And Paul was saying, not only should you uh, be separated from them, but you're in there with them right now. So the first thing you got to do is break the ties. You've got to come out from them. Then he says, and be ye separate. So not only come out, but then stay out. Don't be in and out all the time. Don't be out on Sunday morning and then in Monday through Saturday. Be separated. Notice we're to come out from among them. We're to be separated. And and thirdly, we're to touch not. 
We're not to even touch them. Why? Because here's how God characterizes them. Look at this, verse number 14. Be not ye unequally yoked together with who? Unbelievers. So he calls them unbelievers, right? Is that our, is that our assessment of them or is that God's? That's God's assessment of them, right? All right. What else does he call them? He says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with what? Is that our, our assessment of them or God's? They're unrighteous. He said, Pastor, you shouldn't judge them. I'm, I'm not the one that said it. God did. This is what we're talking about when it says we're to judge righteously, not hypocritically. I'm not saying they're unrighteous because I think they're unrighteous. I'm saying they're unrighteous because God calls them unrighteous. You see the difference? Now, notice what else he calls them here. And what communion hath light with what? Darkness. So, so far, they're unbelieving. They're unrighteous. They're in darkness. Why would a Christian ever want that? What else does he call them? He says, for what concord hath Christ with Belial? In other words, he's referring to the fact that ye are of Christ. You're under his control. You're under his leadership. The unbelievers, they're under Belial. They're under his control. They're under his leadership. So, according to this, they're under the rule of Belial. They're under his control. I didn't, I didn't make that assessment. God did. What else does he call them? What else does he characterize them as? He says, for what part hath he that believeth with a what? He calls them an infidel. And what agreement hath the temple of God with what? He calls them an idolatrous person. For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, and touch not the what? He calls them an unclean thing. You say, Pastor, that's harsh. Take it up with God. That's what He called them. That is not, that is not, don't miss what I'm going to understand what I'm going to say here. That is not unrighteous or hypocritical judgment. But that is the judgment God's people are to be making according to Scripture. Why? Because we have Bible to base it on. We have God's authority. I don't consider them that unless I consider the fact that God has called them that. That's not my judgment to make. That's His. And if He says that's what they are, then that's what they are. I don't get to say, well, I don't think they are that, so I'm going to fellowship with them. Or I'm going to have part with them. Or I'm going to be in agreement with them. Or I'm going to have concord with them. I don't get to make that choice. As God's child, I am to be obedient to Scripture. Now, does that mean I have to be unkind to them? No. But I'm not to have any part with them. Does that mean I have to be unfriendly and not even try to share the gospel with them? No. But that doesn't mean I go and say, hey, let's go to the bar together. Let's go out and party. Let's go out here and live ungodly and worldly together. I'm supposed to not have any part of those things. Our world is in exact opposition to God's Word in so many areas. I'm going to list you just a few of them. We're going to be covering some of these in detail the next few weeks. In the area of adultery and fornication, the world is completely opposite of God's law. In the issue of homosexual 
and transgenderism. The world is in complete opposition to God's law. In the issue of abortion, the world is completely in opposition of God's law. In the issue of idolatry, I know we don't think of this very often, but the world is in complete opposition to God's law. In the issue of respect for authority, the world is in complete opposition to God's law. In the issue of purity of our speech, the world is in complete opposition to God's law. I hate to say this, but in the issue of integrity, the world is in complete opposition to God's law. In the issue of parental authority and children's obedience and honoring of their parents, the world is in complete opposition to God's law. In the issue of God's plan for marriage and its leadership, the world is in complete opposition to God's law. In the issue of personal responsibility for your own actions, the world is in complete opposition to God's law. In the issue of a man ought to work, unless he works, he ought to eat, or he can't eat. The world is in complete opposition to a work ethic. In the issue of purity of heart and mind, the world is in complete opposition to God's moral law. In the issue of our personal appearance, our testimony, the way we dress, the way we look, the way we act, the way we speak, the world is in absolute opposition to this. I was reading an article a number of years ago. It's been probably 15, 20 years ago now. I came across an article that was written in, I think it was the mid-1800s. And there was a new fashion that had come from Europe about swimwear. And the writer of the article was appalled. He said, I cannot believe how much flesh the new modern style of swimwear is showing this come from Europe. Flesh being shown above the ankles and as high as the knee. And how it was creating immoral thoughts. And how it was causing people to be sinful in their minds. How that there were no sleeves to the wrist, that they were now up above the elbows and more of the flesh was being shown. This man goes on and on and on to speak of the immorality, the lustfulness that was coming because of this new style of swimwear that had come from France. And I read the article, and as I got to the end of the article, I was amazed because you know where my mind's going. I can't believe they changed women's swimwear that way. But we get to the end of the article, and he's not talking about women's swimwear. He's talking about men's swimwear. Can I tell you this, that in 150 years, our moral center of morality and modesty when it comes to our appearance has changed. And it certainly has not been led by the truth of God's Word. It seems like the, the impulse of the word, world, those that are unbelievers, those that are under the rule of Belial, are doing everything they can to cause men and women to fall into temptation of enticements. When it comes to this thing of appearance, I'm not talking about just clothing, but clothing is a big issue in that. The way we handle ourselves, the way we speak, our demeanor, our anger, our temper, our sense of character. I was watching a documentary a few weeks ago on the Mennonite groups that are in our country today. 
they had people that went on the inside and were interviewing a lot of these Mennonite people. And they would make sales among themselves. And when there were times they were making agreement to buy some oxen or some uh, furniture from one another, they would agree to do it and then they would shake hands on it. And they said, what, didn't you draw up a contract? No, no need to. Because if we said it and we shook on it, it was done. We live in a world today where even Christian people do not follow that level of integrity. And can I say this, that over the next several weeks we're going to be looking at several of these issues. And we're going to be encouraging our people to start in our, in our church, in our lives, to live uprightly in an upside-down world. It's amazing to me when I look at how far our lives have drifted in just my lifetime. When I look back a hundred years ago and I see where it drifted from the end till even the time I was born. And I'm amazed to see that while yet separated from the world still, we've drifted along with them. And things that used to be right are now considered wrong even in the eyes of Christians. And things that used to be wrong are now considered right even in the eyes of Christians. What happened? We began to compare ourselves by ourselves rather than comparing ourselves to the Bible. How to live uprightly. We're not just going to point out what these moral laws are, but we're going to go through several of them to show how far we've drifted, where we should be. And at the end of it, we're going to give some points from Scripture. How do we get back to there? How do we get back to that point? Because, folks, we need to have some people that will come up again in our society and say, I want to live upright. I want to live upright. No matter what this world does, it's going to create some changes if we're willing to follow them. And uh, be praying for it for the next several weeks. We're going to, Lord willing, tonight's an introduction, introduction, kind of laying a foundation, and we're going to build on top of that for the next several weeks. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll be dismissed. Father, we pray that You'll bless the teaching and the preaching of Your Word. Father, we're living in a day where a lot of these topics are never dealt with, they're never touched on. Somewhat for fear, somewhat because we feel like maybe the 